Welcome to the sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church in downtown Bentonville. If you have questions related to what you hear today, or just want to find out more about the ministries at First United Methodist Church, please visit us online at fumcbentonville.org, or check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok. Absolutely beautiful, and I can't think of a better way of honoring our saints. So today we are in this series, Humble Before History, where we're looking at divisions within our history, and we're going to see the formation of some brothers and sisters today. And with that, we're going to get in that spirit by hearing this passage from Genesis chapter 33. Jacob looked up and saw Esau approaching with 400 men. Jacob divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two women servants. He put the servants and their children first, Leah and her children after them, and Rachel and Joseph last. He himself went in front of them and bowed to the ground seven times as he was approaching his brother. But Esau ran to meet him, threw his arms around his neck, kissed him, and they wept. Esau looked up and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, the children that God generously gave your servant, the women servants and their children came forward and bowed down. Then Leah and her servants also came forward and bowed. And afterward, Joseph and Rachel came forward and bowed. Esau said, what's the meaning of this entire group of animals that I met? Jacob said, to ask for my master's kindness. Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what's yours. Jacob said, no, please do me the kindness of accepting my gift. Seeing your face is like seeing God's face since you've accepted me so warmly. Take this present that I've brought because God has been generous to me and I have everything I need. So Jacob persuaded him and he took it. Esau said, let's break camp and set out and I'll go with you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, open our hearts, our minds, and our eyes that we might see and know the word you have for us this day. In your holy name we pray. Amen. So when I was in high school, my parents went off to a conference and left me in charge of my brother. And we had to, this was a school week, so we had to get to school. So I was charged with getting us to school. And they left us with the van to get to school. Now, it's not just any van. This was a 1976 Dodge Tradesman van with a sky roof and floor-to-ceiling shag carpet. It had historically been painted all the colors of the brown rainbow, cream and gold and copper and brown. But that paint job cost us extra money. And so my dad, in order to save money on insurance, one day took some cans of black spray paint and spray painted the van black. So that's what we were actually driving, was a a van that had been spray painted black. And this van, it might have been really stealthy, especially at night, because it was solid black, except for the fact that you could hear it from a quarter of a mile away. This is what they left me to take my brother to school in. And on a good day, when mom was driving, My brother refused to be dropped off at the junior high in this thing. He always made her drop him off down the hill. 
Uh, and I don't know why he was so embarrassed. Everyone in town knew that that was our van. But it was the principle of the matter, I suppose. And so he insisted again. He did not want to be dropped off at the junior high. We could pull into the high school and he could walk up to the junior high from there. Now, I was not a very experienced driver, and this van had its particular challenges to it. And as we were approaching school, we were about six blocks away, we were approaching a road that came to a T, where you either had to turn right or turn left. And as we were making our way into that intersection, the van died and careened across the intersection. So I am now blocking all three directions of traffic. At an intersection not very far from school at school drop-off time. There are horns honking. There are people furious. We are dead in the middle of the road, and I start panicking. So what do I do? Start trying to start it, trying to start it, trying to start it. So I flooded it. Yes. (laughs) So now I have a flooded dead van blocking three lanes of traffic, and my brother will not let up. Michelle, what are you doing? You gotta get us out of here. We can't, I can't be seen like this. We gotta get, you gotta, you gotta learn that. You gotta get that. And I said, Mark, just shut up. We had to sit there in utter and total humiliation while we waited for it to settle down from its flooding. Uh, My brother just nonstop letting me have it. I finally got the thing going. I was shaking. We pulled up to the high school, pulled into a parking lot. I jump out, slam the door and say, get a life, Mark. He jumps out, slams the door and says, get a driver's license, Michelle. I have to feel as though that animosity between my brother and I was started by my parents who had left us alone and left us with the van, which is what I told my mom when I went into the school and picked up the payphone and had her paged out of the conference that they were at. No cell phones in this day, right? Had her paged out of the conference when she was in panic. Uh, and then she finds out, I said, mom, you have to come home. You have to come home. It's terrible. She's like, what, what, what? And I said, I can't drive. You've got to come home and take us home from school. And because I'm Gen X, my parents' response was, no, suck it up. Get it together. <laughs> Great. So I still had to deal with my brother after school. I still had to make my way. But I do think that in a lot of ways, that was their fault. That was my parents' fault for putting us in that situation setting up those conditions in which we would face those challenges. Now that I am a parent, even though I raised an only child, I recognize that there is really no way to be prepared for everything that you will face with children. Um, You have to kind of, in many ways, let them learn to make their way through life because there's no way for you to totally prepare them for everything that's before them. And there is a distinct challenge, as someone who has a sibling, there is a distinct challenge of raising two different people who will react to things in very different ways. We're going to look today at two sets of siblings of sorts um, who are dealing with the consequences of decisions that their parents have made and situations that their parents have set up. And we will start here with Esau and Jacob. And we're going to back up to before this story that we just heard in Scripture today. Esau and Jacob were set up from the very beginning to not have the best relationship. I say that because they were twins and that their mother may have never really wanted. The only person of of Rebecca and Isaac who prays for children is Isaac. Rebecca does not. 
And then she is not a happy pregnant person. And she's particularly not happy when she learns that she's carrying twins. And these twins are prophesied to be nations that will be at odds with one another. Not the best start for siblings. And then as they are being born, Esau comes out first. But Jacob has a hold of Esau's heel. And is given the name Jacob because that means heel grabber. And heel grabber is an idiom for a trickster. Someone who's not totally honest. Someone who works the system in dishonest ways. So these are the ways these boys are born. And then add to that that Isaac favors Esau, favors the oldest son, the son who is the hunter, the son who is burly, the son who is kind of the man's man that Isaac may have always wanted to be, the son that um, plays by the rules and does everything right for the most part that his parents will tell him to do. And Jacob is favored by Rebekah. Jacob is the gatherer, not the hunter. He is at home often with his mom helping around the house. And he is, as this trickster, cut of the same cloth as Rebecca and her brother Laban are. They are all tricksters. They all work the system. And so he is the rule breaker. And Esau comes home hungry one day and sells his birthright for a bowl of stew, which you know, you might say that was not the best move, but have you ever been hangry? Like there's a lot I would do for a bowl of stew when I'm hangry, right? So he sells his birthright, but then he gets tricked out of the blessing of the firstborn by Rebecca and Jacob. They dress Jacob up as Esau so he can steal the blessing from his father who is blind. And as a result of losing both his birthright and his blessing, Esau is enraged. In fact, he threatens to kill his brother. And it is so serious that they, the, the parents send Jacob away to go live with Laban, Rebekah's brother, where he gets all of this family that we hear about in the passage we read today. But he has to be separated. The two brothers cannot reside together. There is deep and profound animosity between them. And so one is driven out and one is left at home to take care of the parents. Now let's consider another pair of siblings, a pair of siblings that come to be out of the tension between the mother and the father. If you understand one to be the mother church, the church of England, and one to be the fatherland, what will become the United States of America? There is a deep tension here that happens whenever the Revolutionary War breaks out because the Church of England was the dominant church in the British colonies, of course, served by clergy who have all sworn an oath of allegiance to the king. Remember last week we learned that the king founded the Church of England and part of what he required for those that were ordained was that they swore an oath of allegiance to him. So the clergy who were serving Church of England churches in the Americas had sworn this oath of allegiance and were either seen as suspicious by the people that were engaging in the revolution, or they didn't want to be part of the revolution. They had sworn allegiance to king. They wanted to go back to England. So it's this division between this burgeoning nation and this church and this divide that is between them that sets up the reality of these two brothers that will come to be known as the Episcopal Church USA and the Methodist Church. 
So when it comes to the Episcopal Church, when the people that were part of the Church of England and, and become part of the Episcopal Church here in the United States confront this problem that they have, they play by the rules. They wait for the acknowledged division to be decided. They abide through the revolution and when it becomes clear that there will be a new nation, they nicely separate from the mother church, from the Church of England. They get official approval from the Church of England. They go off and become their own entity with the blessing of the mother church. It's a very orderly departure from home. It's very much like the kid who gets all A's through school and gets the scholarship and goes off to college, hugs mom and dad goodbye and says, I'm off on to my own new life. Thank you, mom and dad. Methodist, different sibling. (laughs) John Wesley, our founder, was not a fan of the American Revolution, but he had even more problems with the fact that people were in the Americas and couldn't get the sacraments. And so he goes to the bishop in the midst of this revolution and says, here's the deal. Why don't we just ordain a few people and skip the oath of allegiance so that we can send people over to the Americas and they can still get communion and baptism and we won't be in the way of everybody's faith journey. And the bishop says no. Now, I have frequently mentioned to you all that if there's a defining characteristic of Methodism, it is we have these hard and fast rules except when we don't. And this is one of those foundational moments of except when we don't. We have these hard and fast rules of this oath of allegiance and having to be ordained by a bishop. And John Wesley sees this as a big problem and sort of breaks the rules in the midst of that. So he commissions Thomas Cook to go over to the Americas and serve as a bishop. And he tells Cook, when you get there, make Francis Asbury a bishop. And then he ordains Richard Watcote and Thomas Vasey. Now, Wesley was just a priest. He was not a bishop. And so when he makes these moves, as far as the Church of England is concerned, it was a breaking of communion. You broke too important of a rule. John Wesley didn't care. He saw it as an opportunity to continue to allow people in the Americas to have the sacraments. So the foundation of the Methodist Church, the creation of us in this brotherhood is like the kid who yells at the parents and say, you don't own me and you can't tell me what to do and packs a bag and runs out to the car and peels out in the driveway. That's who we are, y'all. We are the rule breakers in that sense. Now, in all of these cases, division could continue. But as time goes by, healing can happen. And healing can happen especially when we are built on the foundation of abundant love. And for both the two churches that are mentioned here and for Jacob and Esau, they were both built on the foundation of God's abundant and abiding and reconciling love. So I will share with you that we have for years been in conversation with the Episcopal Church of the United States to be in full communion with them, to sign an official full communion agreement, which will come up again in 2024. It will probably not be signed until 2028. But what it means to be in full communion with another denomination, it means that we fully recognize their baptisms, which we would today anyway. We recognize each other's communion, which I'll just add, the Episcopal Church has actual wine at their communion. (laughs) 
We fully recognize each other's communions and our pastors can serve across denominations, which means I could serve an Episcopal church or someone from the Episcopal church could serve here. It is a healing of old divisions and old wounds. Still allows us to maintain our unique identities, but allows us to do it in a way that recognizes that we are all family, truly related to one another. And in the Bible, we see this phenomenal experience with Jacob and Esau, this healing of this old wound. You know, we hear a lot of what happens in Jacob's story, and maybe it's the fact that he becomes a parent himself, and he sees how hard it is to manage all these relations among siblings. We don't hear as much what happened with Esau. What an incredibly powerful moment for brothers divided for so many years to come together in love, to hug one another and cry and celebrate and to say, looking on your faces like seeing the face of God. All of that old wounding doesn't matter anymore because I have my brother back. How wonderful. I will also share with you that my brother and I have made other trips together since that one. And I think that we were able to do that because our parents told us two very important things when we were growing up to put a foundation of love beneath us. One is that they told us, this will never look fair. We will always treat you differently because you are different people and you need different things. So don't play the, but you did this for him and didn't do it for me game. I'll admit I'm an older sister. I still play that game sometimes, but... I am reminded in the midst of that that I was never promised that. I was always promised to be treated for who I was and my brother to be treated for who he was. And I'm grateful that our parents gave us that and were clear about it. And then they also told us, you know, one day we won't be here. You all will have each other. We hope that you have each other and a great relationship to help each other get through life together. So that was the foundation that I stood on when I was a senior in college and he was a freshman in college and we decided to take our spring break trip together. We were both at the University of Arkansas. We decided to go see cousins in Colorado for spring break. We drove this time our dad's Caprice Classic. We talked French. We were both French majors, believe it or not. We talked French all the way across Kansas because what else are you going to do when you're driving across Kansas, right? We called the hogs together at a sports bar in Breckenridge because it was, you know, Final Four time. The Razorbacks were in it at that point. We made fun of our cousin Lori together because she had just gotten a job in which her job was to market water. Yeah, it sounds like a punchline. It pretty much is. My brother told her, he said, here, I've got your slogan for you. Water, without it, you'll die. (laughs) and we even came up with our band name on that trip Um, when we were leaving Denver little tumbleweeds are rolling across as they are wont to do in that part of the world just bouncing off bouncing off the car you know we're driving along and then we come out from under an overpass and an eight foot tall tumbleweed rolled and bounced off the hood of the car and my brother said tumbleweed Jesus So our band name will be Tumbleweed Jesus if we ever form a band. And we survived the fact that neither one of us had asked mom and dad for money. We both thought the other one had. So we went to Colorado for spring break with little to no money and we scrappily made it because we knew how to be a team. We had learned to be a team and to take care of one another. 
Because that's what brothers and sisters ultimately do. Even when we've been through hard times, even when we've been through struggles, even when we've been through division, we find a way, hopefully, if we're built on a foundation of love for one another, and if God is in the midst of that, we find a way to heal all those old divisions, all those old fights, and come together as one. That's what my brother and I did. But I have to admit, we did it because we had gotten rid of that van. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church in downtown Bentonville. If you would like to let us know you were here, follow the link below to connect. To participate in worship through giving, you can give online at fumcbentonville.org or on Venmo at fumcbentonville. FUMC Bentonville welcomes all. Because we believe the communion table is God's table, we invite everyone into our church family. We welcome and celebrate every race, gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, marital status, age, physical and mental ability, national origin, economic station, and political ideology. We come together in action and outreach, aspiring to follow Jesus' example of radical hospitality, love, and grace as a transformative movement in our community. Please join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m., both in person and on Facebook Live. All are welcome, and we'd love to have you with us. Grace and peace.